Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to open up Zechariah 14 this morning and go through the first three verses, which really set the scene for what the whole world calls Armageddon. And it's going to be a really fruitful study. So let's, let's open up in a word of prayer. God, I thank you so much for this time together. Lord, I do thank you for Zechariah 14. I thank you for the whole book, God, that is just so fruitful. And what an amazing study as we gather together and, and look at the scene that surrounds your return and what, what happens, Lord. And we thank you for this chapter. And as we finish out the book in the next week or so, I just pray that we would take all these things to heart. And God, that we would be blessed for studying your word and prophetically looking at how all of this ends and climaxes, Lord. And we thank you that you're a king that will come back and rightfully rule and reign and that righteousness will judge and rule the earth once again. And we thank you for that, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray, amen. 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 Okay, so Zechariah 14, this whole chapter is pretty amazing, actually. And, you know, it's it's a chapter that The first three verses kind of surround the return of Jesus and the scene of Armageddon, and then the rest of the book, or the rest of the chapter, I should say, details some things that he does after wiping out his enemies, and then also details how he wipes out his enemies. So it's really kind of a, almost like a superhero chapter. It's really cool, um, just the things that our Lord does. And, you know, what, what, on my way over here with my family, we were praying and just praying over the service and over all of you and, and praying. And my prayer lately has just been that everyone that is a part of this church or anyone that even finds us online anywhere, uh, we had a family reach out to us from Idaho you know, recently that find, found us and are watching us online now every week. And just as more and more people come across us somehow and the Holy Spirit's guiding them, my prayer has just been that all of us would just have such a sense of urgency to get into the Word of God and to be in the word as our guide, as our source of truth, as our rock, as our foundation, and that the anointing of the Holy Spirit from 1 John 2, 27 and 28 would just teach us everything because that's how we stand as an unashamed bride for Jesus's return. And that's what we're gonna look at today in Zechariah 14, these first three verses. So I took out a few of the, the kind of normal intro slides. You could get those from earlier notes if you need them, but what I wanted to remind you about is Zechariah's name means whom Yahweh remembers. And remember, he's the son of Berkiah, which means Yahweh blesses. And Berkiah was the son of Edu, which means the appointed time. And so if you go through their genealogy in order, their names actually mean at the appointed time, Yahweh blesses whom Yahweh remembers. And that goes not just for Israel, but for you too in your life, that Yahweh, our God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our Messiah, Jesus, he remembers you and he wants to bless you in your life. And all he really wants is your obedience. And it's amazing to me how many times in the Bible he says, I desire obedience over sacrifice. And when you're obedient, he's not then asking you to sacrifice because what he calls you into, he, he has every bit of provision that you will ever need to satisfy that call, no matter what it is. And so all you're doing is you're dying to self. You know, you're sacrificing self to walk in obedience with the Lord. And I think that is amazing, that that genealogy going down to Zechariah, because this was a very important time in the history of Israel. They needed to know that God remembers them because they were in captivity in Babylon forever. If they were just reading the book of Jeremiah and Daniel, they would have known when it would end, but a lot of them weren't. A lot of them weren't in the word of God, and so a lot of them didn't go back to rebuild the temple. But God remembered them, and he had a place for them. 
Now, we've gone through most of these about how Zechariah speaks of our Lord. You know, the stone with seven eyes, his throne, Jesus the Nazarene, the king riding on a donkey from Zechariah 9, the shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus being pierced or crucified, that was in Zechariah 12. And this final chapter 14 is, is his return in power and destroying his enemies to the point that protein is dissolved. And we're going to study that next week where his enemies, their eyes dissolve in their eye sockets and their tongues in their mouths just dissolve when he returns. And it's pretty graphic, but it gives you the, the sense that, wow, who's really in charge here and who's in control of this war? And this outline, we're all the way down at the bottom now in Zechariah 12 through 14, the second arrival of Christ. And what an amazing book with those 10 visions that God gave Zechariah at the very beginning. And you know, the writers under the myrtle tree, that first vision that started in chapter one, verse seven, it's kind of like the book is almost bookended because the writers under the myrtle tree at the front and then Jesus returning on his horse in Zechariah 14 is right at that scene also. And so we're going to put these together today, how God's kind of bookended this, this entire book. So if you remember, chapter 12 set the staging ground for the climactic event of Christ's return as detailed in this chapter. And as a reminder, no court's going to say, no, Jesus can't run for office. Uh, no court's going to say, no, he's not a rightful ruler um, and define him. No court's going to make the decision on whether or not Jesus gets to set up his kingdom because it is instituted by power, not persuasion. And that, to me, is something that's so hopeful that our king doesn't need the world's approval to come back and set up his throne. He's going to just do it. And you and I get the blessed privilege to be a part of that with him and praise God that we are co-heirs with him in that. It's just amazing. Now, as we study all of this stuff, someone mentioned this to me last week. You know, you should not be surprised when people ignore the promise of Christ's return. And look at 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. See, people had a problem during the flood and people have the same problem today. They don't view God as one that intervenes in the, in the affairs of men. They view him as one that sits back and whatever happens, happens, and life is just going to continue as it has since the beginning of the creation. And it's amazing in this one verse alone, God proves that he will come back. And you, if you knew nothing else and you just knew this verse because he calls the people that doubt it scoffers, not in the last days there will be truth tellers saying, where is the promise of his coming? He doesn't say that. In the last days, there will be scoffers. And it's amazing to me how most of the body of Christ ignores the most hopeful thing the Bible lays out, which is the return of the king. Most of the body of Christ does not study this, nor believe it. And it's amazing because if you study and you pay attention to what the enemy's doing, it's very evident that they believe it and that they know it because Satan tries constantly to stop it. And how does he try to stop it? Well, he tries to stop it by wiping out the Jews because the prerequisition or the, the prerequisite for Christ's return is for them to petition his return from Hosea 5. And so if you just pay attention, even in that, you can see it. Now, chapter 13, if you remember, discussed the cleansing of Israel once the millennium is established and how that fountain is opened up to the house of David. Chapter 14 actually lays out some of the events surrounding the staging ground of Armageddon. So Armageddon, Armageddon is not this climactic war where there's cosmic doom and gloom and two entities fighting back and forth. It has nothing to do with Bruce Willis and an asteroid. You know, it has nothing to do with anything the movies make it out to be. Armageddon is nothing more but a staging ground. That's all it is. It's where the enemies of our Lord surround Jerusalem and he returns and wipes them out. There is no battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is an event. And so don't let culture influence you kind of in that way. But because we're going to study Armageddon today in the first three verses. And it's amazing how 
How much you ever notice how the world seems to be obsessed with Armageddon and apocalypse and doomsday and uh, bunkers and I mean, the wealthiest people in the world pour all of their money into hideouts and bunkers underground and build these caves and, you know, self-sustained water wells and food for 70 years. And man, it's like, if the world really gets that bad, I just would rather go home. I mean, why even try to hunker down at that point? Just run out there and and go on to meet the Lord. Uh, That's what I would do. So, but, you know, praise God, we don't have to make that decision. But it's amazing how they are obsessed with the end of the world. And, you know, the, the word apocalypse in Revelation, the un, it just means the unveiling of. And Revelation 1.1 opens up with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now, that's where we get the word apocalypse. The word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. And all it means is to unveil or to reveal the unveiling of. And so when people read the apocalypse of Jesus Christ and you go through and you start chapter six in Revelation, all these horrible things start to happen. They, they, they equate apocalypse with the end of the world and doom and gloom, but that's not what it is. The apocalypse is only the unveiling of. It's, all it is is the revelation of who is Christ really? Who is he? He's a ruling king that will not dwell on the earth with sin. That's who he is. And so he has to, for lack of better words, wipe the world clean before he sets his throne up. And so just keep that in mind. If anyone ever asks you, why don't you worry about the apocalypse? Just say, no, the unveiling of Christ will be awesome. You know, it'll be incredible. And I'm prepared for it because when that starts to happen, we go home. Praise God. Okay, so we're going to take the first three verses here in Zechariah 14 and dive into this. So, starting in verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and they, thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Now, this really struck me, actually, as I was studying this week in 14, verse 1, whose spoil shall be divided? And this whole chapter is about Christ's return, and what he's saying is, your spoil will be divided in the midst of you. Now, when he returns, the Antichrist is ruling the earth, the beast system's in place, the one world government's in order, and the armies of, of the world are surrounding Jerusalem. Christ returns, wipes them out, and so then our spoil is right there for all of us. The spoil of what? All these cities all over the world to rebuild the millennium, to help Christ set up his kingdom I think that's pretty incredible that thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. And the Lord's rewards are throughout the Bible. And we'll look at one at the end here. But remember Hebrews, our study back in Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's one reason why you, you need to know how to go get faith. Because without it, it's impossible to please God. And faith is nothing more than the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen from Hebrews 11, 1. And how to get it is Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you've got to be in the word to build your faith. And then it's not impossible to please him is the connection there. But look at the end of this verse. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. A rewarder. That's the only place in the Bible that uses this title of Christ, a rewarder. And when you have that concept in your mind that Jesus, he delights in rewarding his children. He delights in rewarding you for faithful service. He's not, he's not a, a bad employer, you know, that's not going to reward you for your hard work and what you've done. I know all of you at some point in your lives did something amazing in a job, right? And you get passed over for a promotion or you get looked over for a raise at the end of the year or whatever it is. And you think, well, goodness, why did I go the extra mile all the last 10 years or whatever it is? And that's not the case with the Lord. Jesus is a rewarder and he sees what you do for the kingdom. So be encouraged in that. Do not be downtrodden that someday you won't be rewarded for this. You will in a way that will absolutely radically blow your mind. It's beyond comprehension what what you'll get on the other side of this. Look at Revelation 22, verses 12 through 14. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me 
His reward is with him when he comes back to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Now the city he's talking about, remember, is the new Jerusalem. Remember we studied that back in Revelation and then God's prophetic word, the new Jerusalem that has gates that are set up and you have to have, it's a reward that you get to enter in through those gates into the city. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there are people back on the earth, on this new earth that's recreated, repopulating the earth that maybe they don't get that reward. I don't know, the Bible's not really clear on that. But that's pretty amazing that if you do his commandments, there's two promises in, that, in those verses, that you have right to the tree of life again, that Adam lost and forfeited, Adam and Eve, and that you may enter in through the gates into the new city. So that's pretty cool. Okay, verse two here. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. So all nations, you know, that includes the United States. All nations, God means all nations. The entire world will be against Jerusalem at this time and against Israel. And at some point, you know, I, I don't know when the United States falls at some point during the tribulation. It will be, obviously. Um, thankfully, and praise God once again, we won't be here to see that. And I pray that we won't be here to see it even start to fall, that we remain a beacon of hope and light to the world until the church goes home. When the church goes home in the rapture, that may be what causes the U.S. to fall, actually. Uh, because despite, despite a lot of our bad demonic policies in the U.S. and, and turning our back on God, uh, this, for the most part, still is a nation that the majority of people are Christians, despite them voicing it. And so we need to, that's part of the mission, right? We've got to stand up and get those people out of hibernation, wake them up, be active in their communities, go in and make an impact in this country once again. Uh, we watched a, a movie last night that was set back in 1936, and it's called The Boys in the Boat. I don't know if any of you have seen it or not. It's a great movie if you haven't seen it. A uh, really cool movie, really well done. But it was just amazing that the way they showed the time is only 88 years ago. And just what, how much this nation has changed over 88 years. And, you know, it takes us from 2 Chronicles 7.14, right? It takes us as God's people to bring it back to a place that we are a nation of righteousness to the world. But all nations will be, ba will be gathered against Jerusalem in this day. And the city shall be taken and the houses rifled. And the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, God gives us another ratio here from the tribulation period. Remember last time in Zechariah 13, we saw that two out of three Jews will be killed during the tribulation. Well, here, half of the city shall be taken. So it's another one of those probabilities or, or uh, proportions that God gives us that we right now can actually have an impact on lowering what that number is, not the, not the proportion, the 50% will stay, but how many people are actually there. You know, the more people you get saved, the more people the Jews that you witness to, the lower that number will go, will, will get. And again, if they had been listening to Jesus from Matthew 24, there wouldn't have been anyone in the city anyway. They would have all evacuated, but half of it will be taken, unfortunately. Okay, in verse three here, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Now, if you're an enemy of God, this is like one of the scariest verses in the Bible because the Lord's coming forth to fight against you. And no, no matter what you have, that is not the, the war you want to step into. Okay, I'm just telling you right now. That's not a fight you're going to win with the creator of the universe. In Numbers 21, 14, uh, God gives a reference to something that we don't have today, but look at this. Wherefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, when he, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. Now, that would be an interesting book to read, the wars of the Lord, you know, because our God has fought a lot of wars. Going all the way back, the first war chronicled in the Bible is in between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, when Satan rebelled at the coming of man, and he, he forfeited his dominion over the earth. 
He rebelled against God. God judged the earth, made a flood, set Lucifer aside. He was powerless to do anything against it, and that's all in Jeremiah 4 and Isaiah 45, 18, and kind of throughout the Bible. But God fought against Satan. That's why the world was confused. That's the first war chronicled in the Bible. And then the Holy Spirit had to hover over the deep and put it all back together again. And we know the angels were there before Genesis 1-1 from Job 38. They cheered when the earth was created. And so from that war all the way through the rest of the Bible, our God is fighting wars. Uh, Joshua 5, Jesus fought the battle at Jericho. And remember, Joshua sees him with his sword drawn. Uh, Jesus went forth and fought in the red, at the Red Sea. Remember, with the blow of his nostrils, he had the water stand up and congeal like jello. And Pharaoh's army thought, Pharaoh was so arrogant, he thought he did it for him, that he was so mighty, the God of the universe did it to let Pharaoh cross to chase after Israel. And they followed, and then God said, no, no, you, you missed the point. This is to trap you. And he, and he released it right then and killed them all. But he's fought a lot of wars. And I can't imagine the Lord actually declaring, I'm going to fight against you. And that, that would not be the side you want to be on in any fight, ever. Um, not ever. I mean, you don't ever want to be on the wrong side of that. So, and especially not to, he's not coming forth to speak with them or to correct them in love and, and to come and wash their feet and say, hey guys, would you get your act together? Okay, these are my people, Israel, and, I'm, and I need you to treat them well. He's coming out as a conquering king to wage war that they wanted. They requested this war, and that's all in Psalms 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, the Father, and against his anointed. That's Christ, Jesus. So they're, they're battling two of the three members of the Trinity openly, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know, I can't really imagine anything more arrogant than calling Jesus out onto the battlefield. You know, and you stare and you watch what the World Economic Forum and all these globalists are doing around the world and trying to murder God's children in the womb and create transhumanism and put these chips in you and all this stuff they're wanting to do. And they are just, they are messing with God. They are trying to call him out onto the battlefield. And at some point they will get what they want, which is a world without his church and the king coming back. That's what they want. They want that. And at some point God's going to give them over to that. Now in Revelation 16, it kind of details this. The armies of the earth are gathered together to make war with the Son of God. Look, starting in verse 13 here. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet. So remember, you have this satanic trinity in the tribulation. They're trying to, to emulate the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For they are the spirits of devils or demons in the Greek, working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Now God just inserts this in here. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Okay, in that verse 15, it's that, remember all throughout Revelation, there are those little parenthetical breaks where God gives you something in the middle of the message or the story and that one is a little message to the church from Jesus that you have to be watchful. You have to keep your garments. And where he gets this from, lest he walk naked, remember in the temple, the priestly duty to watch, have a watch at night. If the priest fell asleep, the high priest would come in with a torch and light his garment on fire. And then the garment would burn, it'd wake him up, and he'd run out of the temple naked. And he'd run out and they would see his shame because he wasn't being watchful. And God uses that analogy for the church because you have to be watchful. And how you're watchful is to be in the word of God and to use it to, to look at everything that's going on in the world so that you know the season of when you're going to go home and that Christ is going to come down and take us home. And if you're watching for that, 
he will not, from Revelation 3, come upon you as a thief in the night. You won't be surprised. You'll be looking up, like Luke 21, like we said at the beginning, looking up for your redemption draws nigh. Okay, in the verse 16 here, he said, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Har Megiddo or Megiddon. And all that means is Mount Megiddo, which is north of Jerusalem. So Armageddon actually really isn't an event. It's a place. It's Mount Megiddo. And so here we see this in Revelation 19. So he's gathered them together. Revelation 19, here starting verse 11, after he's gathered them together, here's what happens. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. Now, I don't know if it's actually a horse or a cherubim that Jesus rides back on uh, because in Psalms, it says he's the one that sits between the cherubim. And that's why the mercy seat had the two cherubim with his throne on it. It could be he travels on a white horse, but his mercy seat in Jerusalem is surrounded by cherubim. I'm not sure, but just interesting to think about. And he that set upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. See, Jesus, you don't often think about in this age of grace that we live in, and praise God, you and I are living in an age of grace and time of, of faithfulness and in a time of mercy, right? But Jesus makes war, and you don't really think about that side of him uh, because, honestly, you know, in our lifetime, we haven't seen it that much, globally speaking. But Again, like I said, throughout the Bible, there are so many events where God stepped in and made war with his enemy. And right now, we're in this period of time where God is trying to gather a bride to himself, the church, and to be an unashamed bride, getting as many people saved as possible before he puts on his war, his war garments again. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. I think I'd run on the battlefield at that point. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Now, this is not the blood that he shed on the cross. This is the blood of his enemies at this point. And his name is called the Word of God. One of the best names of Jesus, the Word of God, because you get to have it in your lap every single day in the Bible. And the armies which were in heaven, that's us. This is us now. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's the church. That's where we are. The saints that are raptured before we sit in the, for lack of a better term, the mezzanine in heaven, seeing all of this unfold on the earth. Then in Revelation 19, when he literally splits space time and comes down, we ride down with him on our white horses. You know, those are gifts from the Holy Spirit to us those white horses. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. So the winepress, if, if you're not familiar with that, that analogy God uses, when they would stand in the winepress, they'd have their garments and they would stomp on the grapes and they'd splatter up on their garments and so they would it, when they left, it looked like blood was splattered all over them. That's where God's using this analogy. And that analogy is in, then when he returns, I just want you to notice how these aren't in chronological order throughout Revelation, but 16 is the gathering, 19 is when he comes back, then 14 tells about when the wine press is trodden. So after he comes back, it's in 14 verse 20. And the wine press was trodden without the city, so outside of Jerusalem, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse, horse bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. Now, the horse's bridle, if you've never ridden on a horse, would be roughly four feet high, just kind of rough, rough measurement. So imagine blood of God's enemies being about four feet deep in a valley. Okay, and that valley is 1,600 furlongs, which is about 200 miles now, Mount Megiddo's north of Jerusalem on this map. You can see it on the north part where that, the blue dot starts. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is this valley where the war takes place. And it's in the south. And Basra in Isaiah is the place where the Lord treads the winepress. And the distance 
from the furthest point, Mount Megiddo, all the way down this front, this valley, happens to be, no surprise, 1,600 furlongs. So that's where God gets that. So that valley, imagine that entire stretch for about 200 miles being filled with the blood of Christ's enemies at Armageddon. It's not really much of a battle. It's, it's no battle at all. He comes back and just wipes them out. But, and we're going to see next time why their blood just goes everywhere. It's pretty wild on how he wipes them out. Now, if you go back, so get the picture. They're gathered together, Zechariah 14, 1 through 3, Revelation 16. Christ returns, Revelation 19. He treads the wine press in Revelation 14. And then after that's over is Zechariah 1, 8, from when we studied all the way back at the beginning of the book. I saw by night and behold a man riding upon a red horse and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom and behind him were their red horses speckled and white. So if you remember, not to go back all through this, but in Zechariah 1, the person on the red horse amongst the myrtle trees is Christ. The myrtle tree was always suggesting the millennium. It's the feast of tabernacles. They used myrtle trees. That's why God uses that analogy there. Now, so the rider, there's a leader on a red horse, and behind him are other red horses, some speckled and then some white. Okay, so that's kind of the picture here. In Zechariah 1 verse 9, then, I, then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are they, so Jesus speaking, these are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro the earth and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Okay, so that's the picture. So in those, in those verses, Jesus returns in power on a white horse. We as the church are with him on our white horses. The armies of the earth are surrounding Jerusalem to war against the Messiah. Jesus wipes them all out with his word. The blood fills the valley of Josephat up to, up to the horse's bridle, thus turning Jesus' white horse and his garments red. They're dyed with the, enemy, the blood of his enemies. Some of the white horses that we were, that returned with him, right, get speckled. Some are, some are speckled. Some are white because they're outside the valley. Okay, so the armies were riding in with him. Just imagine the scene. We're all riding in with him. You're sitting next to Jesus. Man, bam, he wipes them out. And then your horse gets drenched in the blood of the enemy as well. And some of, some of us, there's so many of us, right? Some of us are up at the valley, out of the valley, around the cliff edge, looking down, seeing the scene. That's what you, got, what you get in Zechariah 1, 8 through 11. So after the war, uh, some of us then, maybe all of us, are dispatched from Zechariah 1, 11 to walk to and fro through the earth. And we come back to report that all of the earth sits at, is still and is at rest. And then Jesus knows, okay, time to set up the millennium. And so you, when you come back with Christ, you get the opportunity to go around the world and see the peace after he vanquishes his enemies. That's pretty cool. And our white horses, I mean, we're traveling with him interdimensionally in Revelation 19. So just imagine how fast you could traverse the earth. If you could go between space and time itself, and you could just go all over the world in an instant. But during the millennial reign of Christ, that's a gift to you, again, from the Holy Spirit that you get to have for the millennium, maybe for all eternity. And you get to travel the earth and minister to people, set up cities, go on missions for God. It's just gonna be, it's gonna be incredible. So finally, after thousands of years, constant war, the church being persecuted, the continual attempt to wipe out the Jews, to take God's land of Israel, to subdue the word of God, the earth will finally sit still and be at rest. I cannot wait. That's amazing. And then Jesus goes to embrace. So after all of that, Jesus goes to embrace the remnant of Israel 
who fled according to his instructions in Matthew 24. And they flee, the Jews flee at the midpoint of the tribulation when they see the abomination of desolation. And those in Israel that listen to Jesus flee into the wilderness, okay? And that's prophesied in Revelation 12, starting in verse 14. And to the woman, that's Israel, uh, Revelation 12, just if you don't know, that whole chapter gives you a brief overview of the entire Bible and the scene of the woman being Israel who's pregnant with the man-child, the red dragon trying to consume that man-child as soon as he's born. But the woman, Israel, remember after the, the man-child is born, he's caught up to his throne, so Jesus ascends to heaven. Uh, that's another picture of the rapture because the body of Christ ascending up to heaven. The woman, okay, in verse 14, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent or the red dragon. Okay, the remnant of Israel will be nourished for three and a half years. A time and times in Hebrew or in Greek is a dual, means two, and half a time. So you add that up, you have one plus two plus 0.5, so you get the three and a half years. Satan even tries to take them out with the flood at this time. Again, he's not creative. Nothing he does is creative. Uh, God, God wiped out his, his illegitimate offspring in Genesis 6 with a flood, so it's no surprise Satan's trying to wipe out God's people with a flood. And that starts in verse 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman. So the earth's gonna open up in, a, in an earthquake open up in a big valley and opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman. No surprise, because they then petitioned Christ to return in Hosea 5.15. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so after Armageddon, Okay, God, the remnant of Israel's flood. Now, a lot of people think they're flood into Petra, which is in Jordan. We know from Daniel um, 11, Daniel 10 and 11, actually, that Jordan does not fall under the thumb of the Antichrist. And one of the reasons may be to give them a safe passage to flee. But they're, they're nourished for three and a half years. God takes care of them and protects them, despite Satan trying to wipe them out. And then he, after that scene of the red horse, his enemies are vanquished, the blood's up to the horse's bridle, we go around the earth, come back and report, the world is at peace. Jesus then goes to finally get his people, Israel, and to bring them back to Jerusalem. And I have to imagine that has got, that has got to be a moment that Jesus is so looking forward to. After all the way back at Abraham, to finally be at the point that he has his nation that he wanted all along to finally have them admit and confess that he's the Messiah and he brings them back home to his land. It's gotta be quite a moment. And it's chronicled actually in Isaiah 63, the first six verses, if you've never read this. This is Israel speaking. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments? Remember his garments are dyed with the blood of his enemies? From Basra, remember he, they say he came from Basra. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. That's their question. Who is this guy that's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? And then Jesus responds, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now there's only one man that's mighty to save and his name's Jesus Christ. And he's mighty to save He's going to save the remnant of Israel and bring them back. Wherefore, so Israel speaking again, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel in thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Remember that's from Revelation 14. I have trodden the wine press alone. Now this is where you get that when we're with him, we don't get to engage in the battle at all, which has always upset me as one that would love just to go out and fight for just a minute. Just give us a chance, you know. Uh, just imagine all of us go out there and it's like Lord of the Rings or something and we're just getting to fight for a minute, but that doesn't happen. 
he gets, he gets to draw on the wine press. And of the people, there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them with my fear in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, Zechariah 1.8 and Revelation 14, and I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Boy, that's a, that's a hard message from the Lord, that he's going to trample them in fury, bring them down in anger, and just wipe them out. And they, were, they will forever be separated from Jesus at that moment their creator, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be quite an event that you get to witness if you're in Christ. You know, and right now, kind of like what I mentioned at the beginning, the world's really grasping for answers. Uh, They really are. And you see this all over the globe right now, this visceral hatred of Israel, the attack on God, the corrupting of his word. Uh, I was talking to someone before the service and we were talking about how that guy in Turkey, that, that politician was standing at the stand blaspheming Israel and the Abrahamic covenant, and he just fell over dead, you know, on the stage. I don't know if any of you saw that clip. The guy just died right there. And, and when you see, when you're starting to see things like that happen, where people that rail against Israel and blaspheming against Israel start getting hit like that, you know that God is starting to move in a new and unique way. And that's pretty powerful. But you see the corruption of his word, the attack on marriage, youth being lied to, that they're not who God made them to be, and us funding it through tax dollars, you know, cries for abortion, saber rattling all over the Middle East, this global economic uncertainty, and it just goes on and on and on and on. You know, right now as Christians, you and I really do have a captive audience if you'll go out and give them the answer for the hope that lies within you. And it will only encourage and strengthen those around us. And, you know, God told us what these days would be like throughout the whole Bible. But before we go home, we've got to be about his work. There's no, there's no way the rapture can happen after the covenant with the Antichrist is made when the 70th week of Daniel starts. Because if it did, you would know to the day when it would happen. You can't, it can't happen that way. Otherwise, he won't come as a thief in the night, and that's all about the rapture throughout the Bible. But as much as we are longing to go home, as long as we're here, we've got work to do. And you know, God described these days in 2 Timothy 3. Just look at the first seven verses here. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Just read these attributes and let me know. Does this sound familiar? Okay, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Okay, check. Covetous boasters, double check. Proud, blasphemers, Yuval Noah Harari, check, check, check. Disobedient to parents, unfortunately, check. (laughs) Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Look at the corruption of marriage right now. That's unnatural affection. Truce breakers, false accusers an abominable court, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You see that all over today. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That's one of the most dangerous ones on this list. Because I think of all the others, you can recognize it as a Christian and go, Oh, stay away from that. Having a form of godliness is something that has just enough truth in it, but it's twisted. And they deny the power thereof. From such turn away. That's how a lot of Christians get caught into false doctrine because God told us this before he founded New City Church, but you know, there's been a famine of the word of God all around the world. There's a famine of the word in Amos 8.1, a famine of the word of God. And in a famine, what you'll realize is that the people will then eat anything in a famine. So a pastor or anyone can get up and tell you anything they want to say. 
and the people will eat it up because there's a famine. They don't know what else to eat and they're not in the word. And so that's why they agree with corrupting marriage. They agree with abortion. They agree that it's Jesus on the cross plus a lot of things you've got to add to it to get saved. You know, they believe in all these crazy false doctrines that it's not the God that we serve, but they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. For this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, isn't that something? Ever learning, look at the last verse there in verse seven, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's no faith in reading books and reading commentaries and reading, uh, listening to, you know, message from someone. The only way to build your faith is to be in the word of God. And so you've got to be a learner of the word of God. And as long as you're doing that, then you will fully come to the knowledge of the truth and understanding. I noticed this in Proverbs. I'm in Proverbs right now in my daily reading. And it hit me pretty hard. Solomon never asked for wisdom. How many of you thought Solomon asked for wisdom? I know you're going to raise your hand. I did. I always kind of, I, you know, I'd never really thought about this. He asked for understanding. Now, the difference, understanding comes from the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, then, then the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom out of that understanding. And if you remember when Randy's dad spoke here a couple years ago, he kind of went through that. But that really struck me this time for some reason. I had not noticed that before. And so when you get into the word of God, ask for understanding. Ask for understanding like Solomon. And what we have to do, we've got it right now with all of that that we just went through. You've got to take your call very serious and without hesitation because when we are dispatched to go to and fro throughout the earth and it's at rest, remember in Zechariah 14.1, thy spoil is divided amongst you. Well, thy spoil... God for you in the millennium has cities for you to rule over. And that's all in Luke 19, 15 through, let's look down here, through 24. And we won't read this whole thing, but it's in your notes for you. But Luke 19, 15 through 24. Now, what he does, no, it's actually through 26. My apologies. But what he does, he gives them cities as rewards. So look at that back in... Um, Let's see, it's down here toward the bottom. Uh, take from a pound and give him 10 pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath 10 pounds. For I send you that unto everyone which hath, he shall be given from everyone that hath not, even that he shall be taken from him. And if you go back and you read at the beginning of that, actually I won't skip back to it, but God says he has cities laid up for you. So take, can God trust you? That's really the question. You know, can God trust you? And the more he can trust you, the more he's going to entrust with you. And the more responsible you are, the more he's going to give you. And we're going to get the chance to rule and reign with Christ. But right now, as difficult as it may be, we have to keep pushing on and persevering. And as the church sees, as 2 Timothy 3 outlined, perilous times rising up all over the world just don't be surprised. You know, a lot of it takes Christians off guard and they get surprised. They don't know how to act in it and they let the spirit of fear step in and you can't do that. That's why you've got to be in the word of God and battle against the spirit of fear. Then you'll be able to stand in these times and perilous times and go out and actually serve the king in the way that he's fit you only to do because you do have a unique call on your life and it's amazing. Uh, one of the greatest things you can ever do is just to be into your, in the word of God and to find the call, find the call that God has for you. Because once that happens, you will never lack anything in your life. And I don't mean financially. I mean, joy, contentment, peace, a mission, you know, purpose, strength to carry out that call. And to do that, though, first, you've got to be born again. And if anyone's here that's not born again or finding this message down the road, it is so simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart 
that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. And then once you do that, you are a member of God's forever family and you let the Father shape in you and correct you and raise you up and bring you into new life with a mission for his kingdom. I, I just cannot stress to you enough, once that happens, how your life will be so enriched. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for Zechariah 14. God, we thank you that there comes a point that you will not allow the enemy to go any further. And Lord, we know that your people Israel will be pushed to the brink and that God, two, two out of three of them will perish during the tribulation. But God, right now, while there's still time, I pray that we would be about your business and going out into the world and wherever you have us in our sphere of influence to serve you and to witness for you and to bring forth a people for your name in this day and age. And Lord, we pray against the spirit of fear in the lives of your people all over this earth. God, we pray that you would not let the spirit of fear take hold in anyone's life, but that God, you would rebuke it by the blood of the lamb and that Father, you would step in and let the spirit of peace and supplications take hold, the mighty Holy Spirit and overflow your people and let them be encouraged and blessed and strengthened with the urgency to get into your word right now. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. Be with us as we leave this place. And God, again, we do pray that you would tear down the false scales in our, in our nation, in our justice system. Lord, they are an abomination to you. God, tear them down and let righteousness rule and judge in this land once again. Bring this nation up out of this valley and strengthen our land. Lord, we, we do repent on behalf of this land. God, we repent, we repent on behalf of this, the people in this nation, God. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our iniquities and cover this land with your blood and protect us and let your church thrive in this nation once again. And we love you and we thank you for it, Lord. Be with us as we leave this place. In your matchless name we pray, amen.